So we're going to turn over our notebook as we do each Thursday morning to look at our wellspring purpose and the disciplines of our hearts. Can anybody, let's just, I'm going to start and I'm just going to have you shout out the parts that are missing. So without looking, the, um, the purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God, yes, so that they live gospel transforms lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. That's right. Well, discipline one, I'm not going to spend a ton of time this morning on disciplines because I want you to listen throughout the lesson. You're going to see bits and pieces of how practically that's lived out, maybe. So the heart, as she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. I love Ezra 7.10. It says, For Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and teach his statutes and rules. And the reason I love Ezra and his example was that he set his heart. He resolved and determined to study the word of God. We must do that setting of our hearts as well. We're continually reminded in the gospel of who we once were, wicked, unrighteous, in opposition to God, hating God, we were without hope, we were rebellious. God gave the righteous one to die for our sins, and he was raised to life again, overcoming sin and death. The gospel is a vital gift from God, not only for salvation, but also to enable us with the ongoing activity of sin in our lives. It's the enabling grace that we've talked about, Scott has talked about each week and as he's been preaching Titus. So we must be about shepherding and counseling and leading and guarding our hearts, guiding it to the word of God, to meet with him there. And this takes discipline, doesn't it? It takes resolve. And so as we grow in our love for God, that desire is going to grow within us. And the home, discipline too, she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. Like Ezra, we want to practice those things which the word calls us to. As women, we want the law of God to always be on our hearts and on our lips. As we feed upon his word, we can then feed those in our home with his word. We'll be purposeful to minister to the lives of those in our home. We practice here. We show what the gospel has accomplished in us. And discipline three, with the heart for God in the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God in the gospel. Ezra, again, set his heart to study the scriptures, then to practice it, and in here, discipline three, ministry, Ezra taught the scriptures. The gospel and all its implications ought to always be on our lips to encourage one another as we have been in our homes with those in our body and all those whom God will bring across our path. We want to be always pointing one another to the cross, to Jesus Christ. This ministry might happen over lunch. It might be as you're leaving today and having a conversation with a sister in Christ. It might be in small group during the week. Every aspect of our lives is ministry, and we want to point one another to the cross. So if you are struggling in discipline of disciplining yourself in one, two, and three, maybe you can ask yourself, why not? Why am I not pursuing these disciplines? Be honest and examine yourself. Ask the Lord to show you why it is that you may not be practicing them. 
seek his help. Also seek encouragement, maybe from your husband or from another sister in Christ. It is worth it. Would you all take out your outline? Can I get, can I get a Kleenex? I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, today we're going to look at the danger of pride and the hope of the gospel. Today we're going to review from the beginning of the year. <laughs> Way back in the beginning when I talked about um, the heart, a biblical survey. And so we're going to examine our hearts to see where the sin of pride is certain to be lurking. So first we're going to review. What is the heart? Does anyone remember anything about the heart, what it is? It's the inner man, exactly. It's, it's who you are at the very core, right? Yes. Heart and mind are synonymous, as we, um, as we learned. It's the center of our personality, our emotions, and our wills. It's the place that God reveals himself to man. It's the place from which everything flows. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So when we say heart, we're talking about you, who you are in totality, who you are all together. And it's therefore the focal point of God's evaluation of us. When we stand before him, he will not neglect our hearts. Well, what's the condition of my heart? Remember? What does scripture say? Wicked. Wicked. Not only wicked, but desperately wicked, right? It fails me. It's beyond my own ability to cleanse. It foolishly invites even more spiritual darkness. Well, what's the, heart, what's the highest calling of this wicked, desperately wicked heart? To love God with all of my heart, with all of my mind, with all of my soul. To love God not with part of it, but with all of my heart. So that there is this massive gulf between what my heart really is and what it's called to do, to love God. And God is the only one who knows how great that gulf is. He sees our heart accurately. He says, I am the Lord, the searcher of the heart. Well, the first thing that that heart needs is to be cleansed, to be changed, and to be made new. And we are responsible to change it. But what we're incapable of doing, God has done for us. We admit our inability and we plead with God, I can't do this for you. I count on your righteousness, no longer my own. We can trust God's promises. He will do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. We see why the Son of God came to suffer, to bear away our wicked hearts in his body on the cross and to give us a new heart, a heart now capable of loving him. And what did God provide for this wicked heart? Those who are in Christ Jesus have a new heart, yet there is a residue of sin, right? My flesh remains. We need to starve out the flesh that just loves itself. We need to feed our new heart with God's word. It's kind of that weed and feed. Weed out the flesh and feed it with God's word. God has provided his word, his very own words, to come in full contact with my heart. Today, we're going to look specifically at what the word has to say about a prideful heart and the danger to which pride exposes to our hearts. I want to remind you that God uses sinful people to fulfill his purposes. 
So I share today, I'm right there in the trenches with you. God's, display, God's power is displayed when we fight hard to put to death all sin. I recognize pride, and I'm not even aware of, um, necessarily as I was studying this time, new areas of pride, but I was most convicted in that my battle isn't very strong. I lack in fighting against the flesh. So there's conviction. But because we are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And I pray and I ask God for help to fight harder. And so we're going to press on together. Maybe you're going to be made aware of new areas of sin, new areas of pride. Or maybe you too will be convicted of your battle against that. But we're going to go on together. Because God is good, and he is a faithful father, and he is willing and able and ready to help us. We're all going to be aware because we all battle this sin of pride. But there is hope, and we don't lose heart. And know that it can be easily any one of you standing up here and sharing. We are beggars, one beggar leading the other beggar to the food, to the cross, to Christ. And so I'm just a mouthpiece today. So let's begin our study with Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. And I missed putting this out in the outline, so if you will add that under the danger which pride exposes the heart. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. This is Moses giving instruction regarding a king someday. Starting at verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people of, to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return again that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. And then in verse 18, Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself. So who's going to write it but the king? In verse 18 through 20, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that they may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of his law and these statutes. Maybe discipline one. So that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. The king is to write a copy of the law himself. So it's to be in his presence. He's to read it all the days of his life. Why? So that he'll learn to fear the Lord through obedience. The word will prevent him from lifting his heart above others in arrogance and in pride, from thinking, I'm better than all the rest. He needs the word close to his heart so that he doesn't exempt himself from the standard of everyone else. The king of Israel was to be on the same level ground as those around him. And what does the leveling, God's law, 
God's word, God's revelation of himself. The great leveler for all of us is the (coughs) word of God. The word is what will prevent him from lifting up his heart above others. We all have a tendency to exempt ourselves from standards placed on others. It's as if we have some kind of exception for us, that we are somehow privileged. What we need is to be continually exposed to the word at the heart level, right? There's a difference. I can read the word, but not at a heart level. I can read it like a book, but it's at the heart level where I really am needing to engage with God. And this will prevent me from lifting up my heart above others to be prideful. Or we think we are somehow above those around. We quickly point our finger at those who are not as good as we are or who can have who have been caught in great sin. It's hard not to think about the state that our world is in and those around. But we ought to seek a humble attitude through time with him and seek to have a but for the grace of God, there go I attitude. If we are living in obedience to his word, it is only because the grace of God has prevailed in us. No one is morally upright. Rather than feeling superior to those who practice sin, we ought not to condemn them, but to feel deeply grateful that God, by his grace, has kept us from, or perhaps rescued us from, a sin, and pray for them. Our hearts desperately need his heart. Our desperately wicked heart desperately needs his word. We we want to be women who are in God's word. That's why you're here this morning. We need to know God. And we need to come to his word saying, God, if I don't see you, if I don't get you and love you through this word, I'm going to wither up and die. Spiritually speaking, that's exactly what will happen. And when you open his word, you pray. And I gave you an example from Scott that he graciously shared with us. And I thought I'd shared it much earlier in the year. But it's a great example. And you can make this yours or come up with your own. It's an example of how the disciplines might shape your prayerful approach to God through his word. And it's so good, and I want to take time to read it, but I I think I shouldn't. But um, please take time. Don't just stick that away in your Bible, but maybe stick it with your homework, because it's good. So when we hear the word arrogant or pride, we usually think of someone else. Pride is a lot easier to identify in someone else, right? Which itself is pride. (laughs) So let's define pride. A high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether cherished in the mind or displayed in conduct. And this pride, the sin of pride, is displayed in so many ways in our lives. We know the condition of our hearts, that they are prone to deceive and to being deceived. So just to help us understand how sin of pride displays itself and that we're seeing our own pride, let's start with some questions. And I'm, I gave you 41 Evidences of Pride by Nancy Liedemoff. I'm not going to read them all right now, but I'm going to read quite a few just so that we feel the weight of this. The weight of our sin against a holy and righteous God. Are you quick to find fault with others? Do you have a sharp, critical tongue? Do you frequently correct or criticize your husband or others in positions of leadership? Do you give undue time and attention and effort to physical appearance? 
hair, makeup, clothing? Or are you proud that you don't spend time on that? Both ways, right? Are you proud of the schedule you keep, how disciplined you are, how much you're able to accomplish, or how laid back you are? Are you driven to receive approval, praise, or acceptance of others? Do you generally think your way is the right way, the only way, the best way? Do you have a sensitive spirit? Are you easily offended? Do you get your feelings hurt easily? Are you guilty of pretense? Trying to leave a better impression of yourself than is really true? Do you have a hard time admitting that you are wrong? Do you have a hard time confessing your sin? Do you have a difficult time sharing your real spiritual needs and struggles with others? Are you excessively shy? Do you resent being asked or expected to serve your family or your parents or others? Are you a perfectionist? Do you get impatient with those who are not? Do you tend to be controlling? Does your husband or anyone around you feel like they can never measure up to your expectations? Do you neglect to express gratitude for little things to God and to others? Do you neglect prayer and intake of the word? Do you find these words, these questions convicting? I do too. And repentance must accompany our conviction so there is lasting change in our lives. Lover of my soul, I want to live for you. We need to be reminded pride is something we all struggle with. We all have pride in our hearts. But we must guard against being okay with that. Yeah, I struggle with pride or whatever sin that might be. I'm just like everyone else. We can begin to elevate sin, becoming proud that we see our sin, but not battling to eradicate it from our lives. We learn to see sin as God sees it, as we look to scripture, and as we see what he says about sin, the cost, the pay, the penalty for sin, it ought to cause our hearts to be broken and contrite over the sin, because we will see it is against our God, the one who has redeemed us. So on your outline again, Proverbs 16.5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. God hates pride. Assuredly, this one will not go unpunished. That's God's response to pride. It will be punished. The Son of God... He was punished for our pride and our arrogance at the cross. God didn't change his mind about how he feels about it, but Christ became my sin. My arrogance was paid by Christ on the cross. Hosea 13, 4 through 6, along with Deuteronomy 8. Here's a clear statement from God about the way he saw himself with Israel at the time of Exodus and wilderness wanderings. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you are not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, what happened? Their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. 
So we see how dangerous the prideful heart is. Here's first. It leads to forgetfulness, divine forgetfulness. We forget God. There is an inherent danger in our satisfaction with being comfortable, having all that we need, having God's provisions, being blessed abundantly, and having satisfaction. We need to watch out. We have to watch out for this heart. That's when our heart can become proud. And that's when our heart can forget God. We might be tempted to think, well, that would never happen to me. Pride is showing its ugly head. None of us are exempt from that. Never a day that we don't have to watch out over our hearts. It's so much easier to cry out to God when things are hard in relationships or financial problems, whatever it might be. Those trials help us to see our need for God, but we are always in need of God. What can we do to be just as intentional about seeking the Lord when we're satisfied and comfortable? Well, it's what we talk about every week and why we need to remind one another. It's discipline one. We must bring our hearts to meet with the God of the Word. He is the one who keeps us mindful of our constant, ongoing need of Himself, and He does it through His Word. So in Hosea, we saw one way pride would show in our lives. We forget God. But when we find ourselves using the excuse of, let's say, busyness for forgetting God, for not meeting with Him in His Word, for not praying, see, that's the part that's so tricky about rooting out pride in our lives. It wears a lot of different faces. It looks so different and it's so deceiving. We don't always recognize what's going on behind the sin, under the sin, around the sin. Listen as I read first, I'm sorry, Second Chronicles. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. King Uzziah did right in the sight of the Lord, and it says that he continued to seek God, and as long as he did, God prospered him. <clears throat> And verses 6 through 15 describe all kinds of victories and achievements that God gave. And it tells us why. In verse 7, God helped him. And then in 15b, hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped by God until he was strong. He was marvelously helped by God. But what happened? He became strong. But when he became strong, his heart was proud. Remember, pride is an overflow of the heart. It's the same danger we saw in Hosea. Success is so dangerous to our hearts. And it may be the very thing that we are sometimes pursuing more than holiness. In verse 16, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar. Well, how is entering the temple to burn incense, a correct act. How is that being unfaithful to God? Seems like a good thing. Then Azariah the king entered after him, and with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful to the Lord and you will have no honor from the Lord God. Uzziah was unfaithful because he overstepped the boundaries of authority God had given him. 
The Lord had marvelously helped him. He granted him success and many victories. But service in the temple was reserved for the priests, the descendants of Aaron. It wasn't his to take. Burning incense wasn't a bad thing, but Uzziah wasn't qualified to do so. It was not his role. And so we have to ask, are we ever tempted to grasp authority that hasn't been given to us? Ever tempted to work around your husband or your boss or your parents? Rather than humbling ourselves and going to that husband or teacher or parent or elder or small group leader and not asking for guidance, leadership, their permission if necessary. A lot of times we want whatever we want and we want it right now. We don't have time. We're busy. Rather than thinking, what would honor God? But that is pride. Now maybe Uzziah thought he was entitled. After all, he was the king. But he wasn't entitled. It's so easy to have an attitude of entitlement, isn't it? The world screams entitlement. And if our hearts are not in full contact with the word of God daily, we will begin to believe this lie too. Like I'm entitled to something for me. I have a right to me time. Entitled to respect, especially for my children. Appreciation or comfort. Here's what helps me to see what's in my heart. How I react here when I'm not treated the way I think I should be. How I think I'm entitled to be treated. It's a good practice to pay attention to your heart, to see its reactions and its responses. We live in a culture that just says we deserve a break today. I deserve time alone or fulfillment or happiness or health or retirement. That's pride because we think what we want is more important than what God has already given us. Listen, if God wants and sees that you um, are in need of something, he will give it to you and he will give it to you lavishly and abundantly. And if you don't have something, that you think you should have it, maybe because God sees that it is not for you now. It's not a need that you have. And so we see pride in laziness. It could come from a sense of entitlement, because I think I'm entitled to do what I want to with my time. What might lazy lo laziness look like in our lives? It might look like overindulgence in sleep, overindulgence in en entertainment, Computer time, reading blogs, Facebook, email. Now those things are not bad in themselves, but we can just mindlessly allow ourselves to get distracted until we suddenly realize what should have taken 30 minutes has now taken hours, and we've neglected our God-given responsibilities. Laziness really is putting anything ahead of my responsibilities. It's selfish gain. Many of the things I talk about when we battle laziness are not bad, please hear me, but anytime we put what we want to do or think we are entitled to ahead of what God has given us to do, maybe spending time with him or helping our husbands being his helpmate, caring for our homes or families, our roommates, serving the body, reaching out to the lost, or discipline and training our children, Anytime we're putting ourselves first, which is what the world says we should be doing, that's pride. Pride in the heart can lead to a sense of entitlement, which may be lead to overstepping <clears throat> authority or laziness, 
Sin has partners, you see. There's connection. For one sin always brings another, along another or two or three with it. So let's look at this in the New Testament in James 3.13. Now in James chapter 2, he's been dealing with those in the body who were drawing party lines and showing preferential treatment, especially for the rich. They dishonored the poor. He gives instructions and warnings, and then in chapter 3, verse 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and jealous ambition, where? In your heart, do not be arrogant, and so lie against the truth. This wisdom that comes is not, I'm sorry, the wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. See, if we have bitter jealousy in our hearts, if we have selfish ambition, it positions us to be arrogant, to be prideful. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition unchecked will lead to arrogance. So we need to be wise and watch out. This shows us how those sins travel together. The good news is that when we fight sin strategically, by his grace, it might help in defeating other sins. It's a chain reaction like dominoes versus dealing with one. Jealousy, selfish ambition, what's the root? Pride. So we actually make ground in our battle with other sins. And so far, we've seen a few faces of pride, forgetting God, a sense of entitlement, overstepping boundaries, laziness, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. And if we go after the root, we see and repent of pride. We'll actually be doing battle, great battle against many sins. We need to train ourselves and even ask others to help, to see those connections, to see our hearts. And God may be revealing places of pride in your heart. And it's his blessing, it's his kindness that he shows us that. We want to root it out. We want to purify our hearts. And the gospel truths tell me that he has died in my place for my sin. I'm no longer bound to my sin, but now in position to battle and root out this sin. Let's look at some other faces of pride in 2 Chronicles 32, 24-26. And it's interesting that I think it's verse um, 26 that we actually see in both. We see it... Uh, I actually put it under humility, so we're going to look at this again in just a few minutes. Second Chronicles 32, 24. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. The NIV says he did not respond to the kindness shown him, because his heart was proud. Here's another face. He didn't respond to the kindness God showed him. Maybe he wasn't thankful. How might we fail to respond to God's kindness? Well, Romans 2.4 says that the <coughs> kindness of God leads us to repentance. Do you hate admitting your sin? Do you seek forgiveness when you're sinned against someone else or your sin has affected someone in, someone in some way? We can be tempted to just ignore it. To think everyone should just move on and forget it. We may be tempted to think it's not really that big of a deal. That is failure to repent. A failure 
to respond to God's kindness. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. How about contentment? Discontentment and complaining are a failure to respond to God's kindness. A failure to recognize God's kindness to us in all circumstances. A complaining attitude is so easy to fall into. We complain about our appearance, how hard we work, how tired we are, unbelieving family members we deal with, difficulties with the people we live with or work with, financial problems, self-pity because we just think our life should be different. This is not what I thought my life would be like. Complaining in any form reflects a discontented heart. It's disconnect, it's, it is discontent because at a heart level, we really think we deserve better than this. We think we're worth it. Something different than what we have right now. We don't really believe that this circumstance is God's best for me. And believing that is a failure to respond to God's kindness. And Second Chronicles 32 says that it's evidence of a prideful heart. And look at the consequence of that pride at the end of verse 25. Therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Do you realize the impact our pride and sin will have on others around us? They may have to experience consequences from our sin or or, um, and then let's look at verse 26. I do have it in both places. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart. Who did the humbling of his heart? Hezekiah did. Both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of God did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. And that gives us encouragement, doesn't it? That God was willing to turn back from his wrath in the face of repentance. And the hope of believers who lived after the cross is that Christ bore God's righteous wrath against our pride. He gives us a new heart, and we can repent. We have a new ability in Christ. Obadiah 2 and 3, and in Jeremiah 49, 16, is another way we see pride displayed. He is prophesying against the country of Edom. They are descendants of Esau. Remember, Esau was Jacob's twin, and Jacob is who God renamed Israel. So Israel, the descendants of Jacob and Edom, are the descendants of his twin brother Esau. There's a lot of animosity between these two countries, and so God is prophesying against Edom. So here is another face. Obadiah 2.3 Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the cleft of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? What faces of pride do we see here? Well, he says the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. So we see again, the heart is easily deceived. It's the best deceiver. So how were the Edomites deceived? Well, God said he's going to bring them down. And they persist in prideful self-confidence, self-reliance, who's going to bring me down? That's proof of a deceived heart. It's refusing to believe God's words. How could prideful self-confidence or self-reliance or self-sufficiency show up in my heart? Well, how many of you pray about decisions you need to make? You all do, right? And we need to pray. God wants us to pray. We should pray. 
Praise God that through Christ, God made a way for us to come to before the throne of grace. He wants us to do that. So why do we talk about prayer when we're looking at warning about deceptiveness of an arrogant heart? It's important that we understand that there is a right way to pray. When we humble ourselves, we thank God. We ask him for guidance to direct us to biblical principles to help in our decision and to seek wisdom from people who could give good counsel in this situation. Prayer is time to examine my motives, admit how easily deceived I am, to admit how easily I persuade my own heart to do what I want to do, and to admit that, to confess sin and to remember the cross. Prayer is an amazing gift God has given to us. It's time to draw near to him. But what happens when a prideful heart intersects with prayer? And I'm not talking about the prideful heart that's coming, broken and contrite. That should be our hearts, always. I'm not talking about a heart that's coming in humility, ready to confess and turn from pride. No, I mean a prideful heart that is not repentant. It's self-focused. That heart might pray, but it doesn't humble itself before God. It doesn't examine itself with God's word. It doesn't really want wise counsel. Now, when I'm in that condition, when I have an unrepentant pride in heart, self-focused and self-grasping, my heels are dug in. I may very well deceive myself and come away from prayer, convinced myself that what I want is actually God's leading, even if it's contrary to God's word. And that is so serious. Do you see how dangerous a prideful heart can be? Because I convinced myself in prayer to do what I want to do. And it's what I wanted all along. And that's pretty hard to challenge, isn't it? If one of you has concerns about what I'm doing, my decision, and you come to me and you ask some really great questions, and you raise some good biblical principles, and I throw out the trump card and I say, I've prayed about that. What are you to do? I want you to understand the point here. Plenty of times we say we've prayed. We have prayed in a really humble way, in a biblical way. So we need to hope the best in one another. But when that's been the case, we'll probably be open to questions, right? And biblical counsel from others. Do you see the difference? So let's be careful about how we ourselves pray and make decisions and ask God and humble ourselves for help to see where we might be deceiving ourselves. So here's the deal. Deceptiveness of pride is especially hard to battle because the very nature of it is deceptive, right? It's, it's deceptive. It will deceive. We just can't see it. It's blind spot for us. The only way to battle a foe we can't see is with truth. Truth of God's word. Shepherd my heart with the gospel truth and with help from the body of Christ. Do you see that in Discipline 1 and 2 and 3, how they all go together? There is protection in shepherding my heart with God's word and in being concerned with helping one another shepherd their hearts as well. What are we to do? We deal with pride when it is exposed by God's grace in the gospel. These are the things we must bring to the cross. We confess and we repent and we seek forgiveness from those whom we have sinned against in our pride. These are the things which Christ has died for. Because pride exposes our heart to danger, we ask God, please show me where pride exists. Show me where I tend to be arrogant and give me eyes to see. 
We can ask him that every day. We need to ask him because it's easy for us to see pride in others, but not in ourselves. That's the effect of sin in us. It blinds us to our own pride. What do we do when we see others being arrogant? We certainly should see it as an opportunity to ask the Lord, God, make me nearsighted to see my sin before I see others. Help me see the log and repent so that I might be ready to help my sister with her speck. Matthew 7. So we humble ourselves and we repent of pride. Not praying is a sure sign of pride in our hearts as well. Not praying is a sure sign of pride in our hearts. Not seeking the Lord in prayer is like saying, I've got this. I know best. I can handle this on my own. We are saying, I don't need you, God. Well, let's look back at the word, what he says about humility, the opposite of pride. And so I want to just make reference back to Second Chronicles 32, is that Hezekiah humbled himself. So humility is something we pursue. We can humble ourselves. And I'm going to read a quick section in the Gospel Primer. And if you don't have this book, please get it. It is filled with great truths. Cultivating humility. According to scripture, God deliberately designed the gospel in such a way so as to strip me of pride and leave me without any grounds for boasting in myself whatsoever. This is actually a wonderful mercy from God, for pride is at the root of all my sin. Pride produced the first sin in the garden, and pride always precedes every sinful stumbling in my life. Therefore, if I'm to experience deliverance from sin, I must be delivered from the pride that produces it. Thankfully, the gospel is engineered to accomplish this deliverance. Preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault <coughs> against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates my pride more than the daily reminders regarding the gospel of my God, the glory of my God, the gravity of my sins, and the crucifixion of God's own Son in my place. Also, the gracious love of God lavished on me because of Christ's death is always humbling to remember, especially when viewed against the backdrop of the hell I deserve. Pride wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel, and the more pride is mortified within me, the less frequent are my moments of sinful contention with God and with others. Conversely, humility grows lusciously in the atmosphere of the gospel, and the more humility flourishes within me, the more I experience God's grace, along with the strengthening His grace provides. Additionally, such humility intensifies my passion for God and causes my heart increasingly, increasingly to thrill whenever he is praised. What is humility? It's nothing less than a right judgment of myself. A.W. Tozer says the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. In himself, nothing in God, everything. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him. He has stopped caring. He's not concerned about others' opinions. Well, let's turn to 1 Peter 5, verse 5 through 7. <coughs> you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isn't it interesting that he says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another? 
Humility is something that we have to live out in our relationships. But when we are in relationships with others, our hearts are exposed, and we are in a better position to see. You know, like when we're criticized, for example, when we're rebuked or admonished or exhorted, it's so easy to feel hurt or misunderstood <coughs> and be defensive. But that's pride. As if feeling good about myself is more important than seeing an area of which I need to grow. Now, we must be careful about how we go to others, right? We want to go in humility. And the passage continues. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And he, here he shows us how to humble ourselves, casting all our care on him because he cares for you. Another version says, casting all your anxiety on him for he cares for you. So he calls us to humble ourselves by accepting accepting the care he has for us, it's actually pride if we are rejecting his care. C.J. Mahaney says this verse, says about this verse in his book, Humility. When there's worry, where there's anxiousness, pride is at the root. When I'm experiencing anxiety, the root issue is that I'm trying to be self-sufficient. I'm acting independent of God. So the solution is to humble myself where under the mighty hand of God. So when we need to humble ourselves before others, when we need to confess sin, or when we're criticized or rebuked, look beyond that person to the mighty God who cares for you. He is the one you are humbling yourself to. He is the one who is at work in you for your good. <coughs> Humility is having an accurate view of us and of our Savior and seeing others as an instrument, as an in God's hands to purify us. The heart of humility is remembering the gospel and fleeing to Christ. It's crying out, admitting first how prideful we are, <coughs> and thanking and praising him for what he has done. At the cross, God poured out wrath against our pride. He set us free. We're no longer slaves to pride. That's what makes our repentance a joy. Remembering Jesus is my only hope, and he is more than sufficient. He is abundant hope for cultivating this heart of humility. And that being near him, being right with him, is better than anything my prideful heart and attitude will ever offer. Well, Colossians 3, 12 through 14, not only with a humble heart we draw um, not only will a humble heart draw us near to the Savior, it will also draw us near to one another. Colossians 3.12. Watch out first how Paul starts out his gospel identity. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved. That's who we are in Christ. Chosen of God, holy and beloved. We put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should do. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is a perfect bond of unity. So two things that we don't want to miss. The command to be humble is grounded in our identity in Christ, who we are in him. And if we're to wage war with pride and cultivate humility, we must feed our hearts with a steady diet of the gospel. Humility grows out of a heart that cherishes, cherishes Jesus and the realities of the gospel. I must rehearse who I once was, what Christ has done on my behalf, and who I am now in him. 
The second thing I don't want to miss is that humility serves a greater purpose. It's essential for building unity and love between us, between you and me and the rest of the body of Christ. That displays the work of the gospel. So the world will know that we are his disciples. And isn't that what we want? Not our own. We're his slaves. He is a kind master, and he has entrusted us with the greatest treasure, the treasure of Christ's finished work on the cross to pay for sins so that we walk in newness of life. And we can live with one another in such a way that the world says, wow, look how they care for one another. That's so great. How do they do that, and why do they do that? That kind of living adorns the gospel. It puts Christ on display. It declares the power of the gospel to make us what we could never be apart from Christ. Let's turn to Philippians 2. This passage brings us right back to the Savior, the only place we can go to cultivate a humble heart. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's what we're called to be, not driven to please ourselves, but pursuing love and unity with the body of Christ. It's similar to Colossians 3. There is an appeal to unity and love. And what does that require? Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. There it is, humility. Do not merely look out to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ. Now listen to what it says about our Savior. It's a familiar passage, so we don't want to miss it who, although he existed in the form of God, did not, re- did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Aren't we people who just love to grasp, to take hold of what we want? But Jesus, our example, didn't grasp. But he emptied himself, taking <coughs> on the form of a bondservant, a slave. Jesus took the form of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that's how we have received our enabling grace. The grace to turn from pride in all of its many, many faces to humility and love. Because Jesus gave himself on the cross to bear away the penalty of my selfish ambition. To break the power of sin over us. He died to give us new life and a love relationship with himself and his people. That's the power of the gospel. These are the things we must bring to the cross. These are the things which Christ died for and was raised again. Let him go, repent, and follow him. That's how we humble ourselves, by drawing near the cross, where we find this glorious hope for living with one another in unity. We've been looking at all the ways that pride can get its foot in the door of our hearts, tempting us to forget God often through success and blessings, not staying within our authority, having a sense of entitlement or laziness, not responding to God's kindness, not repenting of sin, complaining, discontented. So to battle pride, we we need to be always on the lookout for these faces. The list is endless. Being overly concerned with my appearance, you have 41 in front of you, and there are more. Ladies, these can be such a struggle for us. 
so many times these things, these are the sins that get our attention, the areas where we see disobedience. But if we're diligent to think through our sin and the sin behind the sin, we'll often see a form of pride, of selfish gain. And if we confess that and repent of that, we're going to be getting at other sins as well. It's like a tree in the yard. We see the leaves and the branches, but we don't see the root of the tree until we dig down into the soil. If we're going to get rid of the tree, we must dig down and pull it out by its roots. If we simply pull all the leaves off or cut off the branches, the life of the tree is still in the roots. If I can root out the sin at the heart level, many sins will be affected. Praise God for his kindness in saving us from our sin, saving us to himself by giving us Christ. Preaching the gospel to my heart is to plow the ground of my heart so that I see my sin. The gospel prepares me to face my sin. Facing this causes me to feel guilty because I'm guilty. There's pride. And I seek to minimize it. We must first acknowledge sin's presence. So the gospel gives me assurance that I've been forgiven and I am encouraged to deal and acknowledge that sin. If I'm forgiven, I've already been forgiven, how much easier to come and see and repent and turn from. God doesn't count my sin against me because he has already charged it to Christ. I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. You are a great sinner, but you have a great Savior. And the gospel motivates me to deal with my sin, to put it to death. You see, God is no longer my judge, but because of the cross, he is now my loving Father. He is for me. This produces in me a strong sense of gratitude for what he has done and is presently doing through me and through you. How is it? Maybe that one preaches the gospel to his heart every day, you might ask. So here's just a quick example. I might begin the day realizing that though I am a saint, I still sin every day in thought, deed, word, and motive. If I am aware of any sin, I acknowledge these to God. God, I understand that my impatience with my husband last night is actually pride. I confess this to you as sin against you, a holy God. I know my sin presumes upon your grace. My sin and its deceitfulness suggest that my impatience, my pride, doesn't, don't matter to you because you have forgiven them. That's wrong. I confess my presuming on your grace by tolerating in myself the very sin that nailed you to the cross. And even if my conscience is not indicting me for some conscious sins, I still acknowledge to God that I have not even come close to loving him with all of my heart, my soul, or have loved my neighbor as myself confess and I repent. I remember scripture that assures me that God's forgiveness is complete. Romans 8 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 4 7 through 8, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And we're humbled and we give thanks and I'm positioned to kill the sin that's within and I'm helped and I worship I worship the one and only true God, the giver of life, the lover of our soul, the redeemer, the holy one. Let's pray. Lord, you have chosen us and you have called us holy and beloved. Lord, we have asked you as you have brought conviction about pride in our heart, if you have, that you may also, by your enabling spirit, help us to battle hard. It's not enough for us to be convicted 
we recognize we must be doers of the word as well. Your grace is sufficient for us. We ask for greater grace to kill that sin that remains. You have died for the sin of pride, sins past, present, and future. It's our good to be near you, and I pray that we would draw near to you continually. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You are a loving Father. You are a gracious King. You are a mighty. And Lord, we love you, and we desire to follow after you. Lover of my soul, I want to live for you, because your blood has made me whole. Thank you, Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for all you have done and continue to do in us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.